You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. Today on The James Altucher Show. I always learn so much when Jason Pfeiffer comes on. He's the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, and he also has a great podcast called Build for Tomorrow. Used to be called The Pessimist Archive, but he explains in part two of this why he's not calling it that anymore. What I really get from Jason is that every event is connected to every other event. And it's interesting to see how they're all connected, how, I don't know, the development of the elevator plus the air conditioner basically created all the cities you see in the South. Or what's happening after COVID, how life can change after COVID, the good from COVID. So we have a part one, we have a part two, so much information. I gave myself the exercise if I could list 10 things I learned completely new information in these episodes, and I did, and I hope you do as well. So here's part one. This All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, because, okay. Like, I mean, if this, is, if this is how the episode begins, people are going to tune out immediately. <laughs> 
Uh, uh, people need to know because people has no idea how important internet is, and people okay. always get scammed. But not scammed, but like get lied to by internet provider. Let's summarize what what, what I think is the problem here. So so Jason Pfeiffer uh, is having a a, a a Wi-Fi problem. He's in the room with the router. It's perfect. He moves one room over, and he's blurry. But I think five gigahertz is a scam. I think five gigahertz has such a weak. Uh, wavelength it's not getting through the wall i think you used to switch to 2.4 gigahertz second mm-hmm. what the hell is the google mesh network why just be simple <laughs> wait simple hold on, hold best. on. Verizon uh, bias on. already gets you everything just use the router without the google mesh network i have to debate with uh james a little bit i i i'm a fan of five gigahertz you know because i think that they provide more that's more because you're stuff. sitting out by the pool in your luxury compound that all the audio engineers have <laughs> and so nothing is getting in the way i want to get a hertz signal <laughs> uh, i feel but, left out by that pool scene <laughs> if you're having verizon fios the lowest package they offer is 300 up and down yeah lowest lowest so i should be getting 300 and i'm getting 50. Two issues. 2.4 gigahertz, in some cases, not all, is better than 5 gigahertz because for close quarters with walls, it's stronger. And the Google Mesh Network, you're just putting that in between you and your relationship with Verizon Fios. It's like it's like you have your wife, but then there's some girl you talk to on the phone all the time before you talk to your wife. Oh, we're just friends. And so you're just friends with the Google Mesh Network, but it's getting in the way of your relationship with Verizon Fios. This is the kind of IT consulting I can understand. So I appreciate <laughs> all the metaphors here. Otherwise, I'd be lost. How does he get rid of his Google Mesh network? I just bought it two days ago. That So can we just talk about, you obviously know cognitive biases, sunken cost fallacy. You bought it. What does that have to do with what your download speeds? Because I was trying to fix a problem. And the problem is that I had a router that looked like it was going to blast off into space. It was this crazy router, this like large red thing with four different antennas. I bought it five years ago. And my MacBook is telling me that it has weak security and I can't get any internet in my bedroom, which is not very far away. I live in a 1,000 square foot, two bedroom apartment in Brooklyn. I should be able to get Wi-Fi everywhere. And yet the bedroom has terrible Wi-Fi. It always has. And now that I work from home because of the pandemic, I am I'm dying in my bedroom. Okay. So Let's I got rid of the router. Wait, hold on. So I right, got rid right. of the router. And I thought, Google, I needed a mesh system because clearly there's something wrong with the bedroom, like the walls are too thick or something. So I thought, I need something that can that can heave internet into my bedroom. And that's why I got the Google Mesh. Even if Verizon Fios was having problems in your area, your building, that, it, you should be yeah. not getting the download speeds you're getting. So, yeah. and you just got a new router. So it, should be, it feels should like then home. it's something's wrong with the Wi-Fi coming into your apartment. Oh, yeah. Uh, but okay, what if you just get a, a new regular router without the Google Mesh network? Right. Here's what I here's how I like to solve these problems. Is there a person who can come over and do this for me? Who is that person? I mean, Jay, Verizon is that Fios. you? Is it somebody from Verizon FiOS? <laughs> because the reason why it's Verizon FiOS is because let's say you get a new router and it, and it doesn't solve your problem, then there is some issue between the Wi-Fi, the the the, the internet access through coax outside your building and into your apartment. Somewhere in between outside your building and into your apartment, something is going wrong. And mm-hmm. it has to be on the coaxial cable yep. then, wherever, whether it's located in a different location than you think, or whether there's a problem with the, the cable itself is a little broken. 
Yeah. So then that's why you need a Verizon Fios person. The only no other thing you could try on your own is getting a router that is just a Verizon router. Maybe Verizon doesn't like talking to non-Verizon routers. Yeah. Also, you can run run a cable like 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 I I mentioned earlier. Just run a cable straight from the from the Verizon modem to your computer and see how much you're getting. Right. So that, that should be the be first it. step. Yeah, run an Ethernet cable straight from the modem to your computer, and then you see if it's the router or not. Basically, bypass everything in between. Right, so you know what's mm-hmm. the pure issue right there. So there's there's troubleshooting one on one. You have to eliminate anything in between. But that's why I'm worried about the Google Mesh network is something in between. But God forbid you buy a new router and you still have the same problem. Then only Verizon can solve it. Yeah. Right. So so right, once you run the router, when you once you run the cable uh, from your modem to your computer and you look at the speed, if it's still the same speed, then you should definitely call Verizon Fires. Like, hey. Um, what what's my plan? Is am I getting the 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 highest plan, the lowest plan? And then like if there's issues, then you just like, hey, you guys should come out and fix the issues. Okay, so I'm gonna restate this back to you because I like I like action plans and I like to restate it back so that I understand it. This is what I do at the end of every meeting that I ever take. So the first thing that I need to do after our call today is I need to go and I need to plug my computer directly into the modem. And then I need to run another speed test and I need to see what's going on. If it's the same crappy speed as what I get now, then we've got a Verizon Fios problem and I've got to call them immediately. And if it is a better speed than what I'm getting now, then I've got a router problem and I just wasted $300 or whatever the hell I just spent on Google Mesh. Is that right? Yep. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Oh, oh, because, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so like, like for instance, have you talked to other people in the building? Do they have poor Wi-Fi? I don't know the answer. I should ask. I mean, it's very easy. Like, I don't know when your coaxial cable was installed. It's very easy for physical damage to occur to a coaxial cable. It could be somewhere as it's running through the house that, or maybe you're the last stop in the yeah. house. That's the other issue. Like, we don't know how the, the essentially the architecture of this coaxial cable as it goes from outside to inside Right. And that's the issue. That that is probably the issue. That's why you probably need to call Verizon FiOS. Now, the the only reason I say about the Google Mesh network is that typically companies do a thing where they don't like to talk to products that are not made by them. Right. And so it could be that Verizon deliberately doesn't speak well to the Google Mesh network. Yeah. And and so you know that's the reason to try that. Otherwise, I can't think of. Oh, the other thing is that we spoke about is you need to try 2.4 gigahertz. Why can't you switch to 2.4 gigahertz? It's not giving me the option. I don't have like the two options. My parents have Google Mesh as well, which is the why I thought to buy it. And they do have that option. Like I look at it and it says, you know, whatever their name is, 2.4 and 5. This only gives me one option, which is the name of my wife. It doesn't give me two options. And I can't find anything. I wonder why your parents had that option, but not you. It could be when you set up, it could be a new whole new system already, you know, maybe when they, when they bought it, it was the first generation or something. I mean, it all, it all happened through Google, through the Google Home app, which is what I was looking at a minute ago. I mean, it's got all this stuff that I don't know what I'm looking at here, right? Um, there's, a, there's a thing to test the mesh, but, but I'm, also, I'm also concerned that the Google Home app is telling me that my last test was lightning fast, but I'm showing you guys the numbers and you're telling me that it's uh, you know lightning slow. <laughs> who told you? No. Who told you it was lightning fast? The, the, the company that makes Google. the product. Yes. Yeah. Right there, Google. Doesn't that tell you something when the co- oh this is going great? Good thing we made it. Doesn't that 
it's like well no because like, i feel like wouldn't they want to pass the buck wouldn't they want to say our technology is doing great but something crappy is coming in here it is saying that i believe that something have to do with the fcc because right now fcc consider 25 megabits download a fast broadband okay here's the first thing sorry you want an yeah. action plan yeah number one figure out how to use the google mesh network to get a 2.4 gigahertz connection because okay. All of these routers will always default to five gigahertz and five gigahertz has more problems than people think. Now, five gigahertz is great when it works, but if it doesn't work, you need to be able to switch to 2.4 gigahertz mm -hmm. and it's not giving you that option for some reason. Google Mesh Network does have two networks. We know that. So there's when you, I would log in to the router itself and try to configure 2.4 gigahertz. There must be a way to do it. Second thing is you try a new router, but who knows? Third thing yeah. is connect straight through an ethernet cable from the router to your computers and see right. wh what the strength is. And the fourth thing is you've got to call Verizon Fios. Now calling Verizon Fios, you obviously have a residential connection, but you're working from home. So maybe you can have, you could tell them you want to switch to a commercial um, oh, yeah. account and in a commercial account, they're guaranteed to um, send over someone within 24 hours. Oh yeah. That's good. Yeah, the, the, I like the, that. The, yeah. The, cause, I, Cause I was totally thinking account. when I call Verizon Fios, I'm going to have to go through 14 different people and they're going to have me all troubleshoot the exact same right they're going to their default is to not send somebody over it's going to take forever right but if you're a commercial yep. network that's part if you're a commercial uh, account it's not really more expensive it might not be more expensive at all you just have to be a business mm. and they will send someone over within 24 hours ooh that's yep. their deal that's a hot yep. tip yeah I gave you I just gave you five hot tips so that wasn't <laughs> well, the only and, one and also that's the reason why James is like all of a sudden all expert in uh internet setup right uh, i just set right up now. my own so, and I had problems. So I know everything yeah. now. That's amazing. It, it's easy to be an expert and I'm a good salesman. So <laughs> it's easy for me to convince myself that I'm an expert. That's my problem. You, that's, you, that's why I want to talk to you about imposter syndrome. <laughs> you convinced me. I, I'm, I'm sold on, uh, on doing all of this. Although I really still would default to, can somebody just do this for me? I don't have the time for this. Who can do this for me? Jay, you got to come over and just do this for me. The one thing, the one thing Jay can do is he can like, like you could do this too, really, is get your handbook for the Google Mesh Network, log in Metal, yeah, with yeah. your username and password and configure your 2.4 gigahertz. So I, I believe if I was going to think the simplest solution other than something's wrong with the coaxial cable is that you're not properly, the fact that you don't have the option to switch to 2.4 gigahertz is causing you a problem. Yeah. Because it's very easy yeah. for five gigahertz. It, it's telling to me that your Wi-Fi is strong in the living room, but not in the other room. No, it's not. And it's not. It's not. No, wrong data point. When I did, well, Jay, just a minute ago, I ran a speed test on my wife's laptop, which was in the living room, and it was worse than mine. So, and she's, she's 10 feet from the router. Right. So that, that sounds like a Verizon problem, but all, it could be the 2.4 gigahertz problem. But really what signals the 2.4 gigahertz problem is if it gets very bad, if you move one room over mm -hmm. from the main thing. And that's also happening. You could be having two problems, right. that the coaxial cable is not working well, and you can't switch to 2.4 gigahertz. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. but at least we want to get, if you get to 2.4 gigahertz and you're fine in, in one room away, then you're fine. Then you don't have to call Verizon so fast. Right. Even if there is a problem there. Who needs 400 megabits a second anyway? Work. I so. mean, I mean, if you're doing like video stuff, you know. Yeah, that's true. That would be great to have, you know, 400 megabits. Working from home yeah. is so much fun. Who knew? I know. Who knew it would be this much I fun? Know.
By the way, working from home, more than 50% of, of workers have basically said if they're required to go, more than 50% of remote workers have said if they're required to go back to work, they'll quit their job, which is part of the reason why we're seeing such a shortage of employees now in almost every industry. Well, yeah, that's because those employees understand what companies either always did but refused to acknowledge or just simply couldn't understand, which is that the offices for so many people in so many jobs, completely unnecessary. And not only unnecessary, but I think is truly inhibiting good work. That's how I always felt being in an office. I agree. I mean, the last time I worked in a cubicle was 1998, 1997, mm. sorry. Um, and I just always felt I was in part hiding from my boss yeah. because there's other things that, you know, you creativity is inspired by exploration and discovery. There's work and there's discovery and you need to do both to be creative and to succeed, I think. When I worked at Fast Company, which was a number of years ago, under a different administration, I should note, uh, like most of the people who were there now were not there then. They had this ridiculous policy of constantly moving our desks. I hated it so much where uh, they would just rotate everybody. You'd have to pack up all your stuff and you'd, you'd now sit in a different row with a different group of people. And the idea, I think, was to foster this idea of serendipitous conversation. But I found that Number one, all it did was remove our sense of agency because I felt like I had absolutely no control over my own environment. And then two, I, you know, I, you're plopping me down next to people who I don't normally work with and don't have much to do with. And so I'm just wearing headphones all day so they don't have to hear them talk so that I can focus on my work. I found it infuriating and just a, just a, a willful misunderstanding of how good work happens. It drove me crazy. So I totally sympathize with everybody who would rather stay home. Is the entire um, Entrepreneur Magazine remote or yep. Got rid of what's the, the deal? Got rid of the office. It's gone. In New York. And, and, and let me ask you this. Why do people, when I bring this up to people uh, who are, I mean, there's so many cognitive biases and cognitive dissonance that occurs, but a lot of people argue with me like, oh no, work's never going to be remote. And it's so obvious that it's better to me. But, you know, of course people disagree with everything, but <laughs> people get angry. Yeah. People get angry. Well, people get angry about change. Change makes, change makes people panic. I think that we will not all be remote because change just doesn't work that way, right? If you look back at the history of change and history of innovation, what you see is that new never comes and wholesale replaces old. New integrates with old. So you take the best of the old and the best of the new and you mix them together into something that works for you. And I think that every company will ultimately come to some kind of mixture where there will be companies that everyone's back in the office five days a week but the change will be that there isn't as much travel for meetings because you didn't need it as much or whatever. Right? I, I actually, I, yeah. I, I did a, I did a talk recently for a large, uh, like a, like a quick service uh, food company, and they told me that they are having everybody come back into the office. But the big revelation for them was that. This was this was the real estate team that I was talking to. The big revelation for them was that they didn't need to travel to visit the sites where they were building new restaurants nearly as often. And that you know that's that's a big change. It's not the full change where everyone's working from home, but not having to get on the plane like five times to go to Des Moines to check out a new restaurant like that's a real change. And so I think every company will figure out what works for them, and that's how it should be. There's no. There's never one right fix. And even when change comes along, that doesn't mean that the change is the right fix for everybody. So let's talk about this. Like you did a podcast recently. What good has come from COVID? Yeah. 
But what other things uh, would you say are, are good things and how can people take advantage of these good things if they haven't started to yet? Yeah. So the let, let's let's talk let's talk a little theoretical before we get into the specifics because i was curious about what good comes from gigantic change slash disasters. And there's a really interesting history on this. I found all sorts of good things that came out of the bubonic plague of the 1300s, which I can tell you about if you want. But the big takeaway, the most insightful thing anybody said during that research came from this guy named Brian Berkey at Wharton. And he said that moments of crisis force us to shift the window on what we are willing to collectively take seriously. And that to me is a really powerful insight. Right? What, it, what it means is that there are all these options. We always have lots of options. There's always so much that we can do, but we filter and we have to by nature. We can't be always looking at every possible option. So we filter. And there are some ideas that we think are worth taking seriously. And there are some ideas that we put to the side and we say, that's insane. That's impossible. That's infuriating, whatever. And the thing is, we are wrong in our filtering. We just are. We have to be. It's not possible to be 100% correct, which means that you have great right. ideas that you're putting to the side and you're not taking seriously. And then you will compound that problem by continuing to build off of the plan that you have made in which you have put some really good ideas off to the side and you're not considering them. Do you follow? So so let me, yeah, yes, I follow because if you think about it, I don't know if, if you remember or the listeners remember, but right before COVID mm -hmm. was starting to get the headlines, which was, let's say the first week of March and then by March 13th, we were locked down. Or let's say last week of February even, you know, what was the most important issue that our filtering system, that society's filtering system, decided were the main headlines? Yeah, right before COVID was hitting the headlines. What was it? I'll tell you, I'll tell you. Prince Harry quit his family. <laughs> <laughs> that was the main headlines, I swear to God. Yeah. And, because I, I researched this and, uh, uh, everybody, it was every day there was new news. Like she wasn't going to let him keep his dukedom. He had to leave the army. Meghan Markle was a jerk or she does, didn't like the queen or never got along with Kate Middleton. Mm -hmm. Like every day he, he was going to, he was going to give up his, his salary, but not his father's allowance of 3 million a year. And, <laughs> and he was going to move to a $10 million home in Canada. Like that were the, the main headlines every single day. That was so important in our filtering system. It canceled out the fact that just a week or so before that, we had bombed General Soleimani and were about to go to World War III with Iran. Mm. And Harry over overshone that, and then COVID started. What a series of, what a snapshot into a, what feels like at once a distant world, but also a very familiar world. Because we, we've come right yeah. back to that, haven't we? I mean, there's not, we, well, Oprah had her special. Everybody tuned in. We're all still focused on now a different military mess. I, you know, we we don't have the capacity to, I think, really hold a full holistic perspective of our world at large, or for that matter, the things that are actually impacting us as individuals very well. And so we instead bounce from thing to thing. And we, I think, extrapolate too much what we see. And we think that it's going to impact our lives or our worlds in ways that are that are probably either larger than they really turn out to be or different than they turn out to be. We're very, very bad at predicting the future. Which is, which is actually very much related to, uh, you know, I follow you on Twitter. I hope you follow me I on do. Twitter. I don't know. I do. 
And you retweeted something recently a few weeks ago, uh, uh, Sridhar Ramaswamy, uh, his advice for starting a company. Number one was identify a core customer need. And this is very much related. Mm -hmm. I don't agree with that. I don't think customers know what they need. Mm, I think customers like, like, uh, know what- You look at Steve Jobs, yeah. like Steve Jobs, you know, with, with the phone, he didn't, you know, everybody already had a music player right. and, and nobody, no other phone company had identified, oh, we need to basically combine everything into one device. That'll be great. And he did. And everybody thought, uh, not everybody, but a lot of people thought the iPhone would be a flop. Yeah. And yet uh, it succeeded. That's true. Well, okay, but let's, we, I feel like we have to break that down philosophically. So what was the line? Identify what customers need. Uh, yeah, identify a core customer need. Identify and my argument customer. is customers don't really know what they need and you don't really know what they need, meaning the, the entrepreneur. See, it's true, but I don't think that those are in conflict with each other because what you're responding to is, you're responding to an imaginary version in which he says, ask customers what they need and then respond to that. But identifying a core customer need doesn't mean that the customer articulated that need. Or that's true. it doesn't mean that the customer articulated the need in the way that they actually want to solve it. Because I would say that Steve Jobs, here's what Steve Jobs and all the customers could have both agreed upon before the iPhone. They could have said, people like efficiency, and I would like to make my life more efficient. There are lots of things that I can't access when I'm on the go, and I would really like if those things were, were there with me. Now, how are we going to do that? I don't know. You figure it out, Steve. But I think, so I, so I think that if you sat a bunch of people down and you said, how... How? What do you need to do your work and conduct your life better? People would not have had good answers that you could have turned into a product, but they probably could have identified some kind of abstract pain point that a really inventive person could have turned into a world-changing product. That's true, but you had, you had to take a leap of faith too because phones were on a you know 70-year trend of minimization at that time where every phone model was smaller than the model before. Right. And suddenly the iPhone was bigger than like the flip phone, for instance, which mm -hmm. was around at that time. So he had to take a leap of faith that the trend could be reversed because the need for, let's say, apps and games and music right. was greater than the need for the 70-year constant need for minimization. Well, that's because he rethought it, the thing that you're actually holding. Right? I mean, this is, what he did is that he took, you're right, that the phone was shrinking, but what if you stop thinking of it as a phone? And we still call it a phone, which is weird because it's like, yeah. I use it least for being a phone. Right. The phone is just an app on your phone. Right. <laughs> the phone is an app on so. it. Right. It's one function on your phone, but we don't have a better term for it. I mean, we call it a smartphone, but it's like a stupid thing that people have dropped. So it's now just the phone again. But when you think about it, so I have this, I'm obsessed, James, with this, with this question, asking this question. And I, I feel like a version of this question could have gotten you from phone to smartphone. And that question is, what is it for? I feel like if you ask about everything that you do and all the things that you have, the question, what is it for? And I give you an example of how it applies to my own industry because this is where I came from or where, where the idea came from for me. Uh, when you ask that repeatedly, what you find is that the answer to it changes. And if you're really willing to take the answer seriously, it leads you in radical new directions. So, so give me an example. Yeah. So... Here's, I give a lot of talks about change because that's like my big subject, how to find opportunity and change, how to become more adaptable. And one of the first questions in an audience afterwards is always, uh, 
very interesting uh, topic, Jason. You work at a legacy media company with a print magazine, uh, which seems like pretty old. So how does change uh, work for you? And, hmm. you know, after after people ask me this over and over again. I, and then like, after, after you called him a dick for asking <laughs> that, like, he's sort of like, He's sort of like calling you out there a little bit. Like yes. I would have, I would have been a little aggressive in my response. No, I respect it. You know why? Because I feel like the thing that any sensible person should do when they're hearing somebody's, somebody's philosophy or, or guidebook for the world is to try to poke holes in it because the holes are where the really interesting stuff happens. And if you, ca- if, if you find that you, you poke something, you think it's a hole and the person can fill in the hole, then maybe this thing is a little sounder than it was before. So I, I like it. I like, it. it feels like the, it's the lowest hanging fruit and I like that people go for it. And so I, I, but it, but it forced me to really think about it and it changed ultimately the way that I think of my industry. And again, it goes to this question, what is it for? So here's how it works. I started to ask this question, what is content for? What is it for? And if you were to, and obviously like, you know, news has this intrinsic value in society, all that, but let's just put that aside. What is content for? Business speaking, what is it for? Well, if you were to answer that question for the majority of time in which the media industry was around, the answer would be content is for monetization. Content is what you sell subscriptions to and content is what you run ads against. And that's how you make money off of the content. But now that's not true. If you ask the question, seriously ask the question, what is content for? The answer can't be monetization because subscriptions are harder and harder to sell and ads are harder and harder to sell. And yes, of course, there are exceptions to that, but but overall, trends are down industry-wide. It's very hard to sell subscriptions to something. It's very hard to monetize it with ads. So what is content for? Well, it's for something. It's got to be for something. We're all making it. What's it for? And my answer is it's for relationships. Because when I talk to audiences, what I find is that they feel a trust and they feel a bond with a media property that they recognize and have been consuming for a while. They, 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 they like entrepreneur. They like, I used to work at men's health. Here's the thing that would always happen. I, I worked at men's health for like three or four years, the very beginning of my career. I'd go to a party. Somebody would say, what do you do? I'd say, I'm an editor at Men's Health. And they'd be like, whoa, I love Men's Health. That's awesome. And I would say, that's so cool. Um, what was your favorite story recently? And they say, oh, I, I, I mean, I, I, I haven't picked up the magazine in years, but I, you know, I, I, so I don't know. But I, but I love it. It's so great, right? The, it's a relationship. Content has built a relationship. Even if they are not maintaining that relationship, it is a relationship. It's trust. So the question to me then becomes, well, okay, if that's the most powerful thing that comes out of content right now, that, that is not waning, then how do you build a business off of that? And the answer is that you build products and services that people will buy because they trust you because of the content. I mean, this is why brands go into content. Why does Red Bull make a magazine and all these videos and all this stuff about extreme sports? Is that because that's where their money is coming from? No, they make their money off of energy drinks. But people will buy the energy drinks because they trust the brand because of the content. So I think that the future of media has to be one in which we stop thinking about content as a thing that we monetize. We start thinking about it as a thing that we build relationships off of. And then we are monetizing that audience in different ways through products and services services because of the content, because of the trust. So that's an example of what is it for?
I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours, and they they were willing to pay for everything for me. So. I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I was just talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? Zip Recruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ziprecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter. And I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails, like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash 
James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Some people make a ton of money on their podcast. Let's talk with like Joe Rogan sure. or whoever, Tim Ferriss, whatever. But... I think the main goal for doing a podcast is not to quit your job and get rich doing the podcast, but I get many more opportunities because people know of me through my podcast or my writing mm -hmm. or my content, like you say. So it builds relationship. It builds, I don't want to use the word brand, but it builds relationships. People get to know you and, and so they, their world of people they know is larger because you're coming into their living room, communicating to them. Now there's the other side of the question, which is what is content for to the consumer? You mentioned how news has some intangible value, but I would argue that the main value of customer for the consumer is entertainment. Even when yeah. we're providing information, with that. it's, it's, it's mostly entertainment because mm -hmm. we want to know about Prince Harry or Kanye or whatever. Sure. Uh, but, but yeah, that's really interesting. So what was your answer to, you know, the guy who asked about Entrepreneur Magazine. <laughs> well, you know, it's the funny thing is that in the beginning, I think I probably stumbled around in answer and I said, well, it's still very valuable and we're also innovating. We're like pushing into new spaces. But then my answer became this, I mean, it became what I just told you, right? Like, I mean, I just walk people through my thinking because I think that the most important, it's like, I, I like to answer questions for people by trying to get to what I think that they really care about instead of what they're just asking me. Like that guy's asking me about that, but he doesn't care about the media industry, right? Who you know, like who cares about that if you're not working in media? But if I can deliver to you some new way of thinking, which to me is that question, what is it for? Applying what is it for to everything that you're doing, then then I think that I've provided some kind of value. So like I, I always try to I always try to answer the question in a way that I think gets to something that can be useful to people rather than just like literally answering their question. Yeah, it's interesting. I think this is very important from an entrepreneurial perspective because let's say you have an ad agency and and people have a choice between hiring your ad agency, ad agency or hiring another ad agency. Mm -hmm. It's having, and I asked, I say this because I ran an agency in the 90s. That was my first business. It was a type of agency. Mm -hmm. And everybody, you couldn't really judge who makes a better website, who doesn't make a better website. So really relationship was everything. And that was a very direct relationship. Like I would call people and say, let's go to dinner. Yeah. Like that was my sales technique as opposed to saying, oh, we could do the best website for the cheapest. Nobody cared about that because they didn't know how to judge that. That's right. But if they liked you, they'd hire you. That's right. And, and that was very important. So, so uh, it's, it's interesting to say what you think the customer needs on every side of that equation is not always what the obvious answer is. And I think yeah. it's important for people, for, for entrepreneurs to realize that they have to have many angles into the customer and hopefully one of those angles is correct. Oh, we have the best product. Oh, we have the best brand. Oh, we have the best, you know, warranty or 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 we, we have the best entertainment value right. or something. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, well, that, I mean, I think, what you just said there about about the building the relationships, I think is really valuable because 
some people might think that the only way that we are going to sell ourselves is through the quality of our work. And that is not to say that the, what I'm about to say does not discount quality of work. Quality of work has to be there. But another way to think about it is that quality of work is assumed. So if you are working at a certain level, then quality of work is assumed. I know that you're going to be good at this. So the question is, what else does the client need? And the answer is often trust. Like, why are you going out to dinner with a client? Because they need more than just quality of work. They can get quality of work anywhere. They need trust. And a version of this that that really opened my eyes to, to this insight came from a conversation. It was like an offhanded thing that this guy said. It was a conversation with the president of Reebok years ago. And he was telling me how they are always thinking there about um, about how quality has to be assumed. Um, he said, he was like, the example he gave me was, was scissors. He's like, imagine trying to market scissors. You can't market scissors by saying it cuts things really well. It better cut things really well. Like if there's a scissors on the market, then cutting things really well has to be assumed. So what else can you offer so that you're going beyond the quality that everyone assumes? If you think that you are delivering just on the thing that you're delivering on, then you're missing the real opportunity. Oftentimes, the real opportunity is trust. It's additional value. It's other ways that it fits into your world. It's ways that it's ways that it understands you and your world. That's what ultimately you're competing upon because trust, because quality has to be assumed. So, how would you advertise scissors? Like, if you were to make a marketing campaign for scissors, <laughs> what would you do? Well, like I could see yeah. a commercial where just like scene after scene of someone being mugged, but you pull out your scissors and you just stab someone <laughs> to death with the scissors. I feel like that leads to a lawsuit. Uh, I, that's a good question. Well, okay. If I was trying to enter the, the scissors market now, I guess I would start by thinking, let's look at who is underserved by the existing scissors in the market, or rather who, who is willing, who's able to be picked off of like the generic scissors out there where like 3M must make a 20,000 different scissors, right? And they're going to tackle and own all the, I don't know, who's the major buyers of scissors? Uh, all the, all the, anyone, any office who just needs a pair of scissors. Um, so who, who can I serve that is looking for something more than cheap, assumed quality scissors? Um, I think that design is one way to go, right? People who are designing their offices or their homes in particular ways so that they would really appreciate a scissors that feels like it fits into their design aesthetic. Um, maybe I would think that the adult scissor market is totally saturated, but is there someone else that I can market scissors to? Is the kids scissor market ready to blow up. Like, you know, there, there's those are little like zigzaggy scissors. Maybe there's something totally innovative there. Uh, I don't know. How would you market scissors? I, I feel like, I feel like I can't, you can't just make a good pair of scissors. That already exists. Yeah. Uh, well, well, you know, yeah, because you, you were almost veering into product design. Yeah. Like, uh, how, how could you, like, I could see with product design, you know, you have a basic scissors, but then different attachments. Oh, are we cutting meat or are we cutting paper <laughs> or, you know, mm. we can put a different attachment. But like, I think, I think to market it, I would do something just ridiculous. Like, um, you know, two people are in a cafeteria, a public or public eating place. One's cutting 
uh, but making a mess of what is cutting. Like he's cutting an article out of a newspaper and it's right. all jagged. Another one just has a very fast, like it makes. And then the the the, the, the handsome guy or the beautiful girl uh, is attracted to the person with. The, the my brand scissors. <laughs> so um, you just do the car. You just do the car thing. Right. So what's what's the difference between any two cars? I have no idea. Sometimes the cars are exactly the same, but two different companies, but the same factory. Yeah, made them. yeah. And yeah, it's just so, brand. So I'll give you like a little historical anecdote that maybe maybe would would guide us here on the scissors example. All right, so. I'm trying to think what I started with here is what's just a common object that you don't really think that much about and you don't associate with brand in any way. So the fork in the early 1800s was not a very common thing that you would find on tables in America. Uh, the fork, the fork actually has a long, crazy history. Uh, it took thousands and thousands of years for people to be willing to use a fork. Like people, people hated it. At one point it was associated with the devil. Anyway, it's long and, and interesting and wacky and you can find it on my podcast build for tomorrow where I did a whole episode about forks. But, uh, but in the, in, by the 1800s, um, the fork had made its way over to America, but it was only used by the elite. And the reason for that was in one way very simple. And that was because there's a reason we use the word silverware. And that's because silver was the best material to make utensils out of. People tried other things, but like you make a, you make silver, you make a fork out of iron and things go bad quickly, you know? And, uh, and so you got to use, uh, you got to use silver just turned out to be the best, which means that most people can't afford it. And if they're going to be buying anything, it's going to be a spoon and a knife and a fork is just a luxury item that most people can't afford. And also people are associating with the elite and they're like, I'm not the elite. I'm a common person. I don't want a fork. And then uh, a couple things change. Silver plating is invented in the mid 1800s, and then which means that you only have to use a tiny amount of silver. And then the Comstock load is found in 1859. And um, the Comstock load, so now you've got like a ton of silver, and you, which which drops the price of silver. And now you can make a utensil using just a very tiny amount of silver. And so the price of a fork plummets. And now forks can be used by anybody. And so everybody starts buying a fork. It's no longer an elite product. Now, what do the silver companies do to serve their elite client who now feels left out because their cool fork that was once a status symbol is no longer a status symbol? The answer is that they start to make all of these specialty forks. So this is where you get the the olive fork and the macaroni fork and the ice cream fork because people used to eat ice cream with forks and the you know, various fish forks. Like there's a whole world of these things. Go Google them. There's a million of them. And this is where it comes out of. It comes out of trying to serve this elite marketplace where they just lost their status symbol and they wanted something new. And so we created specialty forks. And this worked for a while until it didn't. Anyway, point is, here is an example in which, yeah, in which you have, you have a, an, an object that could be considered a general utility. And you have an audience of people who would like a specialized version of that. And if you can understand what that audience is looking for, then you can serve them with something that didn't previously exist, which actually goes back to your Steve Jobs example, right? Like you couldn't have gone to those people and said, okay, people, you've got a bunch of money and you don't feel special with your fork anymore. So what do you want? They wouldn't have come up with macaroni fork, but if you understood what they were lacking in their world now and what they were willing to spend their money on and the kinds of things that they will bring into their homes and make it feel like an elite status symbol, well, then macaroni fork suddenly makes a lot of sense. 
Well, that's just it. It's very interesting because they're not really buying what they're, they're, buying bu they're not really buying a macaroni fork. They're buying right. status, right? So you have to be aware of that subtlety, which is not so easy to be aware mm -hmm. of, and it wouldn't come out in any questionnaire. Right. Like you have to sort of either fall into that or really deeply understand what's changed, yeah. what's the before and after. Thanks for listening to part one of this, part two, which is also downloaded today. I learned all about everything from the elevator to more about podcasting, how Jason makes decisions and what's going on in the media industry and how this applies to every one of us as an individual. And most importantly, I learned about things, amazing things I didn't know about elevators. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.